Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. That'll be our text this morning. Psalm 32. As you turn there, consider a question. What do you think is the secret to true well-being? What is the secret to true well-being? Is it a healthy diet? I just cut out processed food and then you're you're there. You're you're going to be you're going to be feeling good. Is it harmonious relationships? As long as I don't have any tensions in my relationships, I'm, I'm in a pretty good state of well-being. Is it a satisfying career? Is that when you feel truly stable and at peace, when you have a satisfying career? Is it fulfilling hobbies or creative outlets? Abraham Maslow, one of the fathers of modern psychology and the creator of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, uh, he said self-actualization, right, which, which means being able to live in the present moment according to your full potential. That's what true well-being is. But what does God, our creator who made us, what does he say the secret is to true well-being? What does God say true well-being is? Now certainly a healthy body is, is good. That helps you feel good. That gives you energy. Harmonious relationships are wonderful. A satisfying career can give you a great sense of satisfaction and fulfillment at the end of the day. Hobbies uh, and creative outlets can give you a way to express yourself and all those things are fine. But do any of these things really define the path to true well-being as God sees it? In this morning's psalm, we see that there is indeed a biblical definition for true happiness, true well-being. But it's a definition that depends far less on what we do and far more on what God says of us and what He does. Sin, as we'll see this morning, is the ultimate destroyer of human well-being, but there is indeed a way for sin to be forgiven and for you and I to enjoy true biblical happiness and true biblical well-being. Let's read our text, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God. Five points this morning for you from Psalm 32. In verses 1 through 2, we see the blessing of forgiven sin. Verses 3 through 4, we see the effect of hidden sin. Verse 5, we see the necessity of confessing sin. Verses 6 through 9, the way for sinners. And finally, 
Verses 10 through 11, again, the blessing of forgiven sin. The blessing of forgiven sin. Let's begin looking at verses 1 through 2. We're, we're told at the very beginning of the psalm that this is a psalm of David. That under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David wrote this psalm. Um, most, if not all of us, are familiar with King David. Uh, and he's the writer of most of the psalms we have in the Old Testament. And David begins Psalm 32 with a very clear statement about the person who is truly blessed. This is a picture of the blessed man. Uh, but before we look at what these characteristics are, it's important to understand the difference between uh, how we often use the term blessed and how David's using the word blessed. We often use the term blessed uh, to refer to good things happening in our lives, right? Something good happened to me, I'm blessed, right? Or I look around me, I see things are well, right? I'm not fighting with my spouse, my kids are behaving, we're out on a you know, great camping trip or something like that, we're out on the lake, right? I'm blessed. And those things are certainly blessings, right? Um, we're told to count our blessings, and these are good things. But that's um, only an aspect, right, of how God may bless us. It's not what David means when he writes about the blessed man. Again, we tend to see blessedness as it relates to circumstances and events. But the Hebrews, and, and David's use of this word here, this kind of blessedness refers more to the state of a person before God and the effect of that state in a person's life. David's referring to a state of blessedness before God and the effect of that state in a person's life. To be blessed as David means it, uh, means to have God's undeserved favor and to be in a state of spiritual gladness. We could say uh, that to be blessed as David means it is to truly have well-being, shalom. Right? That's what David is talking about here. The state of being and of relation to God. Now, circumstances and events play into that, of course, but David's really talking about a state of being, blessedness. And David describes the characteristics of the truly blessed man here, what, what the person with true spiritual well-being and happiness looks like, what's going on in his life. Uh, but surprisingly, these characteristics we see, there's four of them, they really don't have much to do with the man himself. They don't much, have much to do with the man's character himself. There's four characteristics of the truly blessed man we see in verses 1 and 2. Number one, the blessed man has his transgression forgiven by God. Verse 1. Now notice, David mentions in these opening verses three kinds of offense against God. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Transgression refers to going over uh, the boundaries, crossing the lines set by God's law, uh, purposefully deviating from God's commands, and generally in the moment, right? Generally in the moment, right? Something, uh, a situation arises and, and you end up sinning on purpose, but you might regret it, right? You may, have, you may say, well, I wish I didn't do that. It's going across the boundaries set by God's law. All of us have done this at one time or another. And yet the blessed man is the one who has his transgressions forgiven, uh, literally lifted away from him, taken off of his shoulders. That guilt has been removed. Like in Pilgrim's Progress, when the burden on his back rolls away. That's the picture here. So number one, the blessed man has his transgression forgiven by God. Number two, the blessed man has his sin covered by God. 
Sin, uh, again, we're in verse 1, refers to any way in which we fall short of God's standard as it's revealed in his law. Uh, both the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Baptist Catechism define sin as any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is anything that fails to meet God's standard or that goes beyond his commands. Um, again, who among us can say that we've met all of God's righteous standard as revealed in his law? Nobody can. Right? None, none of us can say that. But the blessed man is the one who has these sins covered by God. The guilt and the shame of them are hidden by God. They are taken away from him. They are plunged into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. Number three, the blessed man has his iniquity uncounted by God. Iniquity refers to planned, premeditated sin. This is perhaps the most uh, deeply rebellious of these three kinds of offense against God, and yet all of us have committed iniquity, whether it be gluttony, greed, theft, lying, lust, any number of sins where we're thinking about that sin. Yeah, okay, yeah, I think I'm going to go do that. Yep, I'm going to go do that, and then we go and do it. That's iniquity. Planned, premeditated rebellion against God. But the blessed man is the one whose iniquity is not counted. God doesn't maintain a record of this man's evil deeds against him, but instead refuses to count them and refuses to impute the guilt of these rebellious actions to him. Number four, the fourth characteristic of the truly blessed man is that he has an honest spirit before God, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so far, the blessed man has been described in terms of what God has done for his sin. We'll get into that more later, but uh, we've seen sin, iniquity, transgression against the holy God, those things being dealt with, forgiven, covered, taken away. Uh, but here, in the fourth characteristic, David highlights an aspect of the blessed man's character. This is something about him. He has an honest spirit before God. And there are, of course, those who make a profession of faith. They believe their sins are forgiven simply because they've uh, maybe prayed the sinner's prayer or they use the label of Christian. But then they go on to take advantage of God's grace. And they live as, uh, as, as serious and severe hypocrites, either publicly or secretly. They are not blessed, according to David. And they have no real spiritual gladness or well-being. The blessed man is not a perfect man, but he's an honest man before God who seeks to live in line with his, his profession of faith, and who takes responsibility for his sin, his transgression, his iniquity with genuine repentance. Really, the blessed man, the man with true well-being, is the justified man. It's the justified man. He is the one who believes what God has said and by faith in God, his promises, and his son has had the guilt and condemnation of his sin completely done away with. He's the one that God looks upon and says, you are righteous. That's the truly blessed man, the justified man. And of course, this can only be possible through Jesus' atonement for sinners where Jesus dies for the sins of his people and in exchange gives them his perfect righteousness, which is what's happening both under the new covenant and 
in the Old Testament too under the New Covenant. Paul quotes Psalm 32 and Romans chapter 4 to make this point that throughout all of redemptive history, God has justified and blessed His people by forgiving their sins through faith alone. Whether the old or the new, it's always been justification by faith. And that, Paul says in Romans 4, is the ultimate blessing. That the, the Gentiles get to join in this blessing too. Jew and Gentile, justified and blessed before God. And really, when you think about it, being justified, being in right standing before God is the ultimate blessing because it entails the reconciliation of you and me as estranged sinners to God. It, it entails the adoption into His family. It entails a new heart, a new power for life through the Holy Spirit. When we are justified, all these other things flow out. When our sins are forgiven, all these other things are ours. Really, the forgiveness of sins entails being in the new covenant, as Jesus says in Matthew 26, 28. We, we could maybe summarize verses 1 and 2 to say, blessed is the man who is in the new covenant. So verses 1 and 2 introduce two important realities that David's going to deal with throughout the rest of this psalm. One, there is sin. David acknowledges that, right? Transgression, iniquity, sin. There is sin, and that is the ultimate problem for David for you, for me, for all people. That's the problem, sin. But David also acknowledges in these opening verses, there is forgiveness for sin. That sin is not a problem that can't be dealt with. And the forgiveness of sin, according to David, is the ultimate blessing for David, for you, for me, for all people. So the question is, as we, as we come to this psalm, do you see your sin as your greatest problem? Do you see your sin as your greatest problem? The question is, have your sins been forgiven? Have they been forgiven? Uh, the question is, are you truly blessed? Like David describes here. And the question is, if you are not a Christian, how can you obtain this forgiveness? And the psalm answers all of these questions today. But before David describes the path to forgiveness, he first describes the effect of unconfessed hidden sin. In verses 3 through 4, the effect of hidden sin. <clears throat> One of the things I love about the Psalms is that they are personal. They're personal. We know that they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we also have God's people recording their experiences which can be very relatable for us, very helpful for us. And David, in verses 3 and 4, speaks from his own experience with unforgiven, undealt with, secret sin. And it's not a pretty picture. David said when he was silent, when he tried to conceal his sin from God, it had a drastic and destructive effect on him, both inside and out. First, David, in verse 3, he tells us that hiding his unforgiven sin made his bones waste away. Made his bones waste away. He had no strength of spirit. He couldn't even stand up, right, is the picture there. He was made weak. His energy, his vitality was taken away from him. Bones wasted away. 
He describes how he groaned all day long. That's a picture of joylessness, isn't it? Just groaning, uh, depressed, despondent, moaning and groaning over his distress, over, over his internal conflict. A third, David describes how God's own hand was heavy upon him day and night. Day and night. Uh, David felt weighed down, crushed under the might of God's heavy hand, of God's indignation. And there was no relief for David. And notice, too, that, that even though David uh, essentially says in verse 3 that he's keeping his sin silent, he's trying to hide it from God, God still knew all about it. God still knew all about it. Psalm 90, verse 8 uh, speaks of how God sets our iniquities before him, our secret sins in the light of his presence. Nothing can be hidden from, from God's sight. As much as we try to keep things from him, right, or we just pretend if I ignore this or I just pretend it's not there, then God will miss it too somehow. Friends, you cannot keep your sin from God. And what's more, God was not content to let David just get away with this either. David's a member of God's covenant people, beloved by God for the sake of Christ. God is jealous for David and for David's holiness. So David, as God's child, is disciplined by God, his father. Uh, God is not content to let David just go on this way with undealt with sin. God knows all that's going on, and he lays his heavy hand on David out of loving discipline and loving correction for David's good, as we'll see in verse 5. Fourth, David describes in verse uh, verse 4 how his strength was dried up it's by the heat of summer, like water that just evaporates immediately. The guilt of his unconfessed sins stole the strength of his body. He was weak. He was lifeless. He was unable and uninterested to do anything. David's in sorry shape here. He's in sorry shape. He describes how his soul, his conscience, his body was affected and afflicted inside and out by the weight of unconfessed, undealt with sin. Right? David is unhealthy because of his sin. It affects every aspect of him. And it's interesting, when we read the description of David's experience here, much of it matches what we call depression and anxiety today at a popular level. Uh, now, I'm certainly not saying depression and anxiety is always caused by sin in a person's life. not saying that at all. But it does seem that we should consider the possibility that unconfessed and undealt with sin can and does certainly cause a person to become depressed, anxious, and distressed. It will have that effect in your life. If you are a member of God's people, you will not be able to go on with undealt with sin for the rest of your life. God will afflict you so that it will be dealt with. You were not made to live in rebellion against God. That's not why God created you. Uh, You were not saved so that you might continue in sin against God and then just keep those things from Him. That's not why God purchased you with the blood of his son. That's not why he did that. And so when we go off and we do what we were not designed to do, it's going to have destructive effects in our life, isn't it? If you pull up your gasoline car to the pump and pour diesel in that thing, you're not going to be going very far. Because it wasn't made to do that. 
And so when we continue in sin, and we don't deal with it according to the way God has set out for us, it will ruin you. It will ruin you. It'll destroy you. Sin doesn't just affect the next life. It'll affect your well-being in this life too. Uh, maybe you can relate to what David's describing here. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> when you do not deal with your sin, and again, we're not talking about you know, becoming a Christian. We're talking about as a Christian, when we continue to sin, dealing with it, it will affect your well-being. Spiritually speaking, your blessedness, right? It will steal your peace. It will steal your joy. It will steal your gladness. It will steal the strength of your spirit. And it will steal the assurance of your salvation. It will not steal your salvation, but you will not walk around feeling near to God. And you will not walk around feeling His delight in you as you hide your sin from Him. It's not going to happen. It will ruin you. Unconfessed, unforgiven, undealt with sin is nothing but destructive. And God may bring blessing out of your sin, but hiding your sin will never make you blessed. It will never make you blessed. And David describes that here. I mean, he's a mess because he's not dealing with his sin. He's described the weight of it. He's described the devastating effect it's had on him in his life. And now he tells us what the destructive effect of sin and God's hand upon him spurred him to do in verse 5. And we see the necessity of confessing sin. The necessity of confessing sin. Uh, David, as we read, is brought to a great state of distress by his sin against God. And he tells us the solution in verse 5. And it's really quite simple. It's really quite simple what David says. We, we tend to look for all these different alternative things, right, to feel better. But what David says to do is quite simple. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, to God. Literally, he made his sin known to God. He, he, and God knows all about David's sin, right? David's not telling God something God doesn't know already. But what David is doing, it's not for God's benefit, but for, for his own. David's bringing his sin out into the open. He's no longer attempting to cover his iniquity. He's saying, Lord, I've done this, done this, I've done this. I'm acknowledging my sin before you. And notice the parallel here in verse 5. David says, I did not cover my iniquity. And notice the parallel with verse 1. David had been trying to cover his own iniquity and it was not working. It was man's way of trying to cover sin, just, just hiding it. But that's not the kind of covering David needed. He needed God to cover his sin. So as David uncovers his sin, God covers it for him. And so David brings his sin out into the open. He, he confesses it to God, confessing his transgressions to the Lord, determining to do this. Modeling for us the necessary action to be in the state of blessedness. Confession of sin. Confession of sin. This means naming it specifically and particularly before God. Not God I sinned. Amen. But God, I was angry towards my spouse and my heart. Will you forgive me for breaking your command to love my spouse? Not God, I messed up again. Amen. But God, I indulged my flesh with this or that for comfort instead of running to you as my refuge. Forgive me for setting up an idol in my heart. Not God, I blew it again. Amen. But God, I sinned by only thinking about myself. 
and treating the other person that way or this way. Will you forgive me? Sin must be personal, particular, very, very specific. We cannot repent of our sin if we cannot name it before God. And in addition, we see David agreeing with God about the sin itself as part of his confession. He's agreeing with God about the nature of his actions. David describes his actions very specifically, clearly here, intentionally. He doesn't call them mess-ups, mistakes, or failures. He calls them what God calls them. He labels them what God labels them. He, he calls them sin, transgression, iniquity. He agrees with God about the nature of his actions as he confesses them to the Lord. And if only we truly agreed more with God about our sin, we'd be far quicker to turn from temptation and repent of those sins. And, and notice, too, who David is confessing his sin to. He's not going to a priest in a dark box. He's confessing to the one he has truly and ultimately offended, God. He's confessing his sin to God. That doesn't mean that, that David doesn't go and confess to a person he has wronged or offended. But he's confessing his sin to the one whose laws he's broken. God himself. He's confessing his sin to the one who ultimately he needs forgiveness from. God himself. Brothers and sisters, how often do you confess your sins to God? How often do you go to God and lay before him the things you have done wrong? from that day or that minute ago? How often do you bring those things to Him? Acknowledging them, agreeing with God about them, and seeking God's forgiveness. I'm surprised when I talk to Christians sometimes about how that aspect of our relationship with God gets neglected. Sometimes we're far quicker to seek forgiveness from people than from God. But God is the one who we have ultimately sinned against. And so David goes to God and confesses his sin to him. And what's the result of this repentant confession from David? He tells us God forgave the iniquity of his sin. God removes the guilt of that sin and restores the fellowship that David had with him. Now this doesn't mean that David wasn't justified before he confessed his sin. Right? That doesn't mean that that David was, was in covenant with God, then he sinned, and now he's out of covenant with God. That's not what is, is pictured here. But it means that the kind of um, transactional forgiveness, we could say, that must be granted between a sinner and the one they've sinned against hadn't yet happened. David's still in covenant with God, but his sin affected his relationship with his God. And here's what I mean. If you say something unkind to your spouse, you're still covenanted with them in marriage, aren't you? That hasn't changed because you've sinned. But has the quality of your relationship been damaged? Yeah, we all know that, that feeling of tension and, um, and indignation, right? There is not the kind of closeness and uh, nearness that you would want to have. That sin has affected the quality of your relationship. And it remains that way generally until you go to your spouse, confess your sin, and ask their forgiveness. And then... Right? Lord willing, if you're talking about two Christians especially, the subjective aspect of that relationship is restored. 
there's something amazingly powerful about saying, I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And the other person saying, yes. There's an exchange that happens there. There's reconciliation and healing that happens there. So it is with God. If you are a Christian, when you, when you sin against God, your heavenly Father, you're still in covenant with Him. You're still in relationship with Him. You haven't lost your salvation. But is your communion with God, is your fellowship with God affected by your sin? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But when you confess that sin to God and when you seek His forgiveness like David does here, He will grant it. And He will restore to you the subjective aspect of your relationship with Him. We confess our sins to God. We are restored in our fellowship with Him, our nearness to Him. We are assured of His mercy and His pardon. Proverbs 20, 18-13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Brother and sister, when you, when you sin, don't hide that sin from God. Don't hide that sin from God. That's just going to push you further away from Him. He's waiting for you to come to Him in confession so that through Christ He can bestow mercy and forgiveness upon you and restore that relationship and fellowship that He desires to have with you as His child. Are you hiding sin from God? Are you, are you silent about your sin? Do you act as if He can't see you? Are you troubled in your heart by your secret iniquities? Do you lack spiritual peace? Well, bring those sins to God. Acknowledge them to Him. By faith in Christ, He stands ready to forgive you. Don't carry the guilt of that around anymore. That guilt has brought you nothing good in your relationship with God. He wants that removed. So come in confession to Him. This isn't the only thing that, that or this isn't the thing that only David should do. This psalm isn't just God's plan for only David, but really, as we see in the next section, this is God's plan and God's way, God's path for all sinners. Verses 6 through 9. This is the way for sinners. David's experience of dealing with his sin leads him to desire others to experience this same blessedness. And he offers an exhortation to all of God's people in verse 6. Let everyone who is godly, therefore, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Now, the godly here in Hebrew are those who are God's faithful ones, those who are in covenant with, with him by faith. And David's exhortation is simply this. Don't wait to pray to God about your sin. Don't wait to pray to God about your sin. Offer prayer to Him now, today. Don't delay. David tells us to do this while God may be found. This is conveying a sense of urgency. Not that God will depart from us, but do it now. Don't let your sin linger. Don't continue in that without confession and repentance until the point where your heart is hardened. Pray to Him today. Today. And David describes how the, the day of great waters, the flood, a day of trouble and distress, will not reach the one who has sought refuge and forgiveness in God. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him, meaning the godly one. The implication, of course, is pray to God now, be found in fellowship with God now, for he is a hiding place for his people, for 
His sinful people. For those who humbly draw near to Him will be safe in that day. And this was David's experience, wasn't it? He confessed his sin to God. He was forgiven. And look what he says in verse 7. He says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And David knew this well. He had confessed his sin to God. He had received the assurance of forgiveness from God, restoration of fellowship, and he could say with confidence, Yes, God is a hiding place for me. I confess my sin to Him. He preserves me from trouble. I walk with Him. He surrounds me with shouts of deliverance. And therefore, David says, confess your sins to God now that you might enjoy all of His benefits now. That you might be able to say this with confidence along with David. You know, a long time ago, shopkeepers would let customers keep a, a tab for their groceries and their supplies, their expenses. The best customers would keep short accounts. They'd keep short accounts, meaning they wouldn't let their tabs get too long. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, uh, remarked that we too should keep short accounts with God. We should keep short accounts with God. And that's exactly what David tells us to do here. Confess your sins daily. Keep short accounts. And you will enjoy close fellowship with God. You will enjoy close fellowship with God. There's a bit of a transition as we go to verse 8. Most commentators uh, agree, and I think they're right, that God is the primary speaker in verses 8 and 9. God is the one speaking here. God instructs not only David, but all of his people in the way they should go. He says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. God is eager to teach sinners the path to walk on, to have forgiveness and fellowship with Him. He is ready to counsel sinners like us. And who better to listen to than God Himself? Who better to listen to than God Himself? Who knows more about our sinful ways than He? Who knows more about how to be forgiven than Him, the one who forgives? Who knows more about what's best for us than Him? Who is better to listen to than God Himself? Psalm 25, 8 and 9 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. And, and that's the rub, isn't it? That's the rub, isn't it? We can be so prideful sometimes. How often in pride do we seek our own ways? How often do we know what God says, but we end up deciding to do something different? How often do we follow our, our own desires to our harm? And therefore, God gives us a reminder in verse 9 not to be like a horse, not to be like a mule without understanding, without wisdom. Horses and mules need to have a bit and a bridle to restrain them. Otherwise, as verse 9 says, they'll wander off. They won't stay near you. They're just going to go do their own thing. And friend, that's what you and I are like when we wander off. We just go our own way instead of listening to the Lord and following His path. We're like a, a brute beast following its base instinct and desires rather than the path that leads to where the shepherd or the, the you know, rancher knows the best food and water is. Follow the Lord's path. Follow His instruction, His counsel. Listen to His word, which teaches us what our sins are. It teaches us to confess those sins to Him, and it teaches us how He forgives and restores us. That brings us full circle to the end of the psalm, verses 10 and 11. 
as we see again the blessing of forgiven sin. Though these last two verses focus on the joyful blessing of forgiven sin, they don't actually start there. Um, And given everything we've seen in this psalm about the effect of sin and what God calls us to do, the beginning of verse 10 is appropriate. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of those who proudly sin against God. While, While God may be kind and patient towards them, He does not bless them with true blessedness as they continue in that state. And their sorrows do multiply. And, and, and certainly the wicked may enjoy temporary advantages in this life. You don't have to be a Christian to have a prosperous life. But they do not know true peace. And ultimately when they die, their sorrows shall multiply infinitely in hell. And for those who love their sin and never forsake it, there will only be distress and tribulation, as Romans 2.9 says. And that is a promise and a warning. From God. Second part of verse 10 provides a contrast, though. While many are the sorrows of the wicked, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The one who trusts in God is never separated from God's covenant love. And this really is the essence of salvation. In a way, this is, uh, this is the gospel in simple terms. We are saved Not through works, but through faith alone, right? And what is the the essence of saving faith? It is trust. It is trust. You can know many facts about Christ. You can know what the Bible says. But if you do not trust in Christ alone to redeem you, you do not have saving, justifying faith. You don't have it. If you do not trust Christ alone to save you, if you do not trust God alone to forgive you, you lack the necessary ingredient for justifying faith. And notice David doesn't say steadfast love surrounds the one who works hard for God. It's just the one who trusts in the Lord. Trust. Justifying faith trusts not in our works, but in Christ's work and in God's merciful character and His promises. And, And when we trust in Christ, when we believe in Him, We are joined together with Him by the Spirit. It's called union with Christ. And we will never be separated from Him again. Nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Is that not a wonderful truth? Especially as we've been hearing about sin and the effect that sin has and the holiness of God. And yet for those who trust in the Lord, even though they sin, Steadfast love surrounds them. Steadfast love surrounds them. And that is an immense blessing. And David tells us in verse 11 how we should respond to this blessing of forgiven sin. How we should respond to God's work and character revealed in the gospel. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's what David says we should do in light of our sins being forgiven. Who's entitled to do this? Who's entitled to have this joy? The righteous, the upright in heart, those who are truly blessed as they walk with God, their sins forgiven and their hearts honest before for Him. David doesn't say rejoice all you perfect people, right? But those who have been made righteous by the work of Christ, those who are upright in heart, who have received a new heart through the work of the Spirit, 
those who have trusted in God and in His Son are entitled to this joy. To be forgiven, to seek, receive, and accept God's forgiveness in Christ is the foundation of Christian joy. That's the foundation of Christian joy because we know we've been reconciled to God. And, 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 and how sad it is at times when we look around our life and it's just so blah. And we just say, ah, it's another day just feeling blah. And we essentially imply that what God has done for us in Christ is nothing to get excited about anymore. How tragic that is. How tragic it is that we base our joy on other things that are paltry in comparison to the unfathomable grace and mercy of God for you in Christ. When we consider that, how can we not have some gladness? How can we not have some joy? When we consider what God has done for us in Christ, that is the foundation of joy in the Christian life, that we are reconciled to God. If you are not a Christian, you do not have access to this. Your sins haven't been forgiven. You don't get to partake in this joy, in this blessedness, and you do not truly have well-being. But you can. You can. Uh, you have sin. That's your greatest problem. And it separates you from God. Because you've broken His law. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners like you. To be a substitute. To take the punishment and sorrow that you deserve. Dying on the cross that your sin would be dealt with and forgiven. And by trusting in Jesus to save you, by believing what He did is enough, by repenting of your sin and confessing Him as Lord... You can and will be forgiven. You will be reconciled to God. You can and will be brought into this joy and this blessedness through faith in Him. You can have access to this. And if you are a Christian, you have access to this joy and gladness and blessedness now. You have it now, as, as we're reminded in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So friend, don't let unconfessed sin rob you of your joy in Christ and of knowing true blessedness. Confess it to Him. Forsake it. He might be truly blessed Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are the one who forgives sinners. Lord, that while you are a just God, you are also a merciful God. Thank you that our sins have been dealt with justly on the cross, the death of Christ, and that our hope has been secured and sealed through his resurrection. Lord, I pray for those who are concealing sin from you this morning, that they would see that you stand as a holy God, but not as a cruel, unforgiving deity. They would understand that you have displayed your love for them in Christ Jesus, and that if you would give up your own son for them, 
how quick you will be to forgive them for his sake. Father, would you help us to run to you every hour, every minute when we sin, confessing to you that the quality of our fellowship and our joy in you would not be hindered. Lord, we thank you that there is true blessedness for us in Christ, that our sins are dealt with in him. And Father, may, be, may we be quick to drink deeply of that well all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.